Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, Mel, Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty. Daddy! Hey, Mikey, if you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get to that budget. Just as soon as I... Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 473, Southward Ho, Part 2. The Japanese takeover of Micronesia during World War II is often treated as inevitable, given the newfound power position of the empire by the dawn of the 20th century. But in reality, the decision to extend Japan's empire into that region was the result of a great deal of wrangling back in Tokyo, during the early days of World War I, in the late summer and early fall of 1914. On the one side were those, primarily members of the Navy and their supporters, who saw the islands as a valuable strategic resource. They could serve as bases for the Navy to project its power throughout the Western Pacific, in essence serving as a sort of fortification to protect Japan from the South. Proponents of this strategy in the Navy were supported by an array of nationalistic journalists like Taketoshi Saburo, who himself would eventually be elected to the Diet. In one of his many public speeches, Taketoshi called for the Western Pacific to become, quote, a Japanese lake, unquote, in which the interests of the empire reigned supreme, making the homeland more secure and, of course, providing a valuable captive market for Japanese goods as well as allowing for the extraction of natural resources from the islands. However, not everyone was as bullish on the plan to build an empire to the south. Members of the foreign ministry, as well as some members of the navy, were deeply concerned about such overt territorial aggrandizement serving to alienate Japan's primary ally at the time, the British. They were concerned about potentially angering the United States as well, Micronesia lies between Hawaii, by this point a territory of the U.S., and the Philippines, also a U.S. territory at this time. A Japanese occupation of Micronesia, particularly if it was followed by the fortification of the islands, could become a major diplomatic issue. In other words, this more cautious crowd objected to a takeover not out of humanitarian grounds or anything like that, but because the potential downsides for Japanese diplomacy outweighed the benefits. For the first six weeks or so of Japan's World War I experience, this cautious crowd, which enjoyed the backing of Foreign Minister Kato Takaaki, as well as both Navy Minister Yashiro Rokuro and his Vice Minister Suzuki Kantaro, won out and kept the squadron sent to Micronesia to its original goal of pursuing and destroying the German Far Eastern Fleet, which unbeknownst to them was already long gone. And yes, by the way, that is the same Suzuki Kantaro who would, 31 years later, preside as Prime Minister over the deliberations regarding Japan's surrender in 1945. 
However, as the early weeks wore on, the expansionists in the Navy and their backers among civilians launched a massive public appeal. Editorials in newspapers and speeches in the Diet decrying the failure to take advantage of this heaven-sent chance to expand the Empire in, as they saw it, a vital new strategic area. The result was that the early days of the Japanese military presence in Micronesia were a sort of comedy of errors. Two stories illustrate this pretty well. First, we have the initial dispatch of the South Seas Squadron itself, led by Admiral Yamaya Tanin. Yamaya had strict orders initially to limit himself to driving out the German military presence in the area, which again by this point was already long gone, the German Pacific Fleet having bolted for the Atlantic in an attempt to make it home. Yamaya, on his own initiative, decided to head to the Jaliut Atoll, a part of the Marshall Islands and the center of the German administration in Micronesia. His fleet arrived there on September 29, 1914, and he promptly ordered a landing by Marines to take control of the area, a process that went very smoothly, as the small number of Germans left on the island had no meaningful chance of resistance, and none of the indigenous people had any interest in helping them. However, when Yamaya radioed back to Tokyo to announce that he had taken the nerve center of German Micronesia, he immediately got orders to pack up his occupying force and head back to Aniwatak Atoll in the northern marshals. Navy Minister Yashiro was very worried about the appearance of territorial aggrandizement on Japan's part, and didn't want any landings taking place to make it look like Japan was unilaterally seizing territory without checking in with its allies and other regional powers like the U.S. However, Minister Yashiro appears to have been overruled in the long term, because no sooner did the fleet arrive in Aniwatak than Admiral Yamaya received a new set of orders, go back to Joliet and reoccupy the place. It is a testimony to the weakness of the German presence in the area that this created no problems, and he was able to do so smoothly by October 3rd, but it is still indicative of just how divided the Navy, and the government more broadly, was on this issue. Nor was Yamaya the only one to get confusing orders. Early in the war, at the request of the British, the Japanese Navy organized a second South Seas Squadron to protect shipping from New Zealand and Australia to Europe both of supplies and of troops. The admiral placed in charge of this fleet was Matsumura Tatsuo, and on his way to his new fleet in Sasebo, he decided to swing by Tokyo to pay respects. First, he went to the Navy Ministry to meet with Minister Yashiro Rokuro, who of course cautioned him on the importance of avoiding any unnecessary appearance of territorial expansion. He was told in no uncertain terms not even to land on a German-controlled island unless it was absolutely necessary, and if he did so to get on and off it as quickly as he could, and under no circumstances to raise a flag or make any other gesture that could be construed as a territorial claim. Doing so, Minister Yashiro warned, would anger Japan's allies and create a diplomatic issue that the tiny islands of Micronesia were simply not worth. Thus cautioned, Admiral Matsumura made his way to his second stop, the offices of the Japanese Naval General Staff, responsible for planning the fleet's actions. There, in meetings with senior admirals and the vice chief of staff for the Navy, he relayed his instructions, which were promptly mocked by basically everyone he talked to. Why shouldn't Japan pick up some new territory for its troubles in the war, they said, 
The Empire should have something to show for its efforts, and after all, it was the Empire the Navy served, not Japan's allies. Besides, the islands of Micronesia were strategically valuable and rich in useful resources like phosphates. Based on his private writings, these arguments appeared to be far more compelling for Admiral Matsumura, and indeed they proved to be so for most people. Cautioning about potential diplomatic issues was just not quite as easy a sell as, here's this easy land to seize that's just waiting for us. In the end, pressure from the Navy as well as civilians who were pro-expansion forced the hands of the government, which by the end of 1914 had agreed to land Marines on German territory in Micronesia. And while all this wrangling over what role Japan would play in Micronesia in 1914 didn't produce any substantial military setbacks, it did end up badly damaging Japan's reputation overseas. The public statements by Prime Minister Okuma Shigenobu to the effect that Japan would not seek any territorial expansion as a result of the war, seemed rather deceptive when the Navy then began landing Marines on Micronesian islands and setting up administrative systems to govern those islands. That reaction was exacerbated by an additional factor. After the military operations against Germany in the Far East in 1914, Japan obstinately refused to send any troops to the theaters of combat in Europe which made the protests that this was all being done in the name of Japan's alliance with Britain ring a bit hollow. For the rest of the war, Japan's commitments would be limited to shipments of arms and supplies, as well as escorts by the Navy of convoys coming from Asia. Indeed, the only Japanese ship lost in the war, the Sakaki, was torpedoed off the coast of Malta in 1917 while hunting for U-boats. All told, Japan lost about 300 soldiers in the whole war, though that number does go up to 4,000 if you include things like serious tropical diseases and the like, as potential sources of casualties. But, however you slice it by comparison, the UK took well over three-quarters of a million losses, and France lost over two million people in the conflict. Given those disparities, some skepticism around the claims that Japan's operations in Micronesia were to the benefit of its allies in the war was, frankly, justifiable. All the more so because after those early months of vacillation, even the moderates in the Japanese government seemed to have become convinced that quitting Micronesia after the takeover would be political suicide and so came around to pressuring the other allies into letting Japan keep the territory. Thus, by 1915, we have Foreign Minister Kato, once a voice of moderation, telling the British Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey that, on one hand, he agreed with the stance of the British government that all occupations of land should be temporary and the final terms agreed to at the end of the war, while at the same time saying that, quote, in view of the very extensive operations which the Japanese Navy has engaged in, the Japanese nation would naturally insist upon the permanent retention of all German islands north of the equator. Gray himself noted in his reply that Kato was kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth here. How could he agree that things would be settled at the end of the war, but also insist that Japan had the right to keep the islands? Kato's response was simply to dodge the question, and merely continue to insist upon Japan's territorial rights. Which is more or less how things rested for the next three years. Eventually, the British government did agree to back Japan's claim to Micronesia, but not out of genuine conviction, for far more political reasons. 
First, when in 1917 Germany authorized unrestricted submarine attacks against Allied shipping, the British government requested more assistance from the Japanese Navy in protecting its convoys. The Japanese government agreed to this in exchange for a recognition by Britain of Japan's claim to Micronesian islands north of the equator. This was the exact deal that led to the Sakaki being in the Mediterranean protecting Allied shipping where it was sunk by a U-boat. Second, the British government was under a lot of pressure from one of its Dominion territories, Australia, which wanted to hang on to German islands and colonies south of the equator, most notably Kaiser Wilhelm's land, what's now the northern part of Papua New Guinea. Somewhat ironically, the main reason the Australian government wanted this territory was to ensure that it didn't fall into Japanese hands. The Australian state at the time was dominated by adherents of the White Australia policy, which is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. For these politicians, hanging on to territory in the north was essential as a buffer to preserve White Australia from the Japanese expansionary menace. Britain eventually caved into Australian demands that conquered German territories south of the equator be given to them. They would remain Australian land until the 1970s under a League of Nations mandate and eventually a UN trusteeship. The British government in turn needed the backing of other countries to support Australia's claim, and so cut a deal with Japan that in the final peace conference, each would support the other's territorial claims. Thus, when World War I came to an end, Japan's occupation of Micronesia was essentially a done deal. Japan had already been administering Micronesia for years at this point, more about that in a second, and had the backing of one of the greatest powers on Earth for its claims in any eventual peace deal. I think it's fair to say that Japan's retention of Micronesia was a foregone conclusion at the eventual peace talks. There is, however, one more interesting wrinkle in the story of how Japan sees the region, a wrinkle created by one of the titanic figures of the age, the American president Woodrow Wilson. Over the course of his time as president of the United States, Wilson went from an isolationist who literally ran in 1916 on the platform of he kept us out of war to a proponent of American intervention in the First World War. Wilson was an idealist in terms of international relations, though pointedly not in terms of race relations in the U.S., where he remained a staunch segregationist, and he justified American intervention in the war on the grounds that it would allow the U.S. and other liberal nations to build a new and more just world order on the ashes of the conflict. Specifically, Wilson called for a post-war world built on his 14 points— essentially some of the foundational ideas of international liberalism as we know them today. These are things like freedom of navigation and commerce, open diplomacy instead of secret agreements between governments, and some sort of international organization to serve as a forum for discussion between governments. Included in this idealistic vision for the future was the idea that going forward nations should reject deliberate territorial aggrandizement in war. America's influence was such that Wilson could not simply be ignored at the final negotiations at Versailles, France in 1919, but his vision was only half complete. The new League of Nations was very much a part of his ideology, for example, but it was largely toothless when it came together, and of course America itself never joined the organization out of opposition from isolationist Republicans in the U.S. Senate. 
Similarly, Wilson was able to torpedo any suggestion of outright expansion by the Allies during the post-war, but was forced to accept a compromise first proposed by General Jan Smuts, the representative of the British Dominion of South Africa. In this compromise, victorious powers would be granted mandates over land controlled by some of the defeated Central Powers, organized under the League of Nations. Those mandates would allow them to control territory where the locals were considered insufficiently advanced to govern themselves, a concept grounded, of course, in the racist ideas of social Darwinism and racial hierarchy that still had a lot of currency at the time. In reality, there was very little that separated these mandates from traditional colonies other than the rhetoric of the League, which in many ways was just a re-upping of the idea of the white man's burden to civilize non-white peoples that had served as part of the impetus for 19th century imperialism. In the case of Micronesia specifically, Japan secured acceptance of a mandate for the region and even inserted into the League of Nations Covenant a clause stating that owing to Micronesia's geographic isolation and economic underdevelopment, it should be governed under Japan's own laws, where other mandates had to at least pay lip service to some separation between the territory they were governing and the mandatory power itself. Practically speaking, the only way in which Wilson's idealism seriously impacted the mandate system was his insistence that mandatory powers agree not to fortify their territories militarily, something the Japanese government eventually agreed to as part of the 1922 Washington Naval Conference, so long as its control of Micronesia was recognized. And so, by a torturous policy of diplomacy, ranging pretty much everywhere in the world except for the islands actually directly affected by it, Micronesia became a mandate of Japan for all intents and purposes, a part of the Japanese Empire. I cannot stress enough, by the way, the extent to which the mandate system was frankly kind of a joke. It was, in essence, colonialism in all but name. For example, mandates were technically subject to the supervision of the Permanent Mandates Commission of the League of Nations, a collection of 10, eventually 11 individuals, from different countries who were in charge of ensuring the mandatory powers were not overstepping their authority, and were following their charge to, in the words of the League of Nations Covenant, uphold the sacred trust of civilization by preparing the locals to, quote, stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world. Leaving aside the, again, pretty racist assumptions underlying those ideas, which is one hell of an aside, but bear with me, the Permanent Mandates Commission itself was frankly a joke. For starters, five of the eventual 11 member states were mandatory powers themselves, and for the most part, the representatives sent to the commission were people who made their livings through colonialism, retired colonial governors or functionaries, basically. Susan Peterson, who's done what's probably the definitive work on the mandate system, said the permanent commission, quote, began to resemble a spa for retired African governors, unquote. Frankly, I think that's pretty spot on. The actual job of the Commission members was to review annual reports on each mandate required by Article 22 of the Covenant of the League of Nations, which was what set up the whole mandate system. Those reports would come in two waves every year, one in June and one in November. Japan's Micronesian mandate was one of the June ones. Mandatory governments basically produced a book report on their activities in the mandate, 
based on a questionnaire created by the Mandate Commission, which was intended to serve as a policy guide or a checklist for colonial administrators. The questions were intended to focus on the uplifting of indigenous communities, but the commission members had no ability to actually check the reports they were receiving. In other words, there was no way to independently verify anything in the report. Instead, each year the commission would examine the report it received on a mandate, and its members would question a representative sent to the commission by the mandatory power. That was pretty much the extent of the supervision. None of the commission members ever went to the mandate themselves, relying on reports from mandatory administrations. They were rarely critical of anything they heard from the mandates, and when they were, they tended to mix those criticisms with compliments about the progress being made. As Taina Twori notes in their work on the mandate system, the primary concern of the commission seems to have been avoiding the perception they were undermining the colonial administration in front of the natives. The commission members couldn't do more than give recommendations to mandatory governments anyway, and beyond that their only duty as spelled out in the League Charter was to advise the League's governing council regarding each mandate. Frankly, it's a system of supervision so weak it's not even really worth the name, and because of that, from this point on, I'm not really going to even bother using the term mandate, and I'm just going to call Micronesia a Japanese colony instead. So what happened in Micronesia once it became a Japanese colony? During the years between the 1914 takeover of the islands and the final establishment of the mandate system in 1920, the islands were governed directly by the Imperial Japanese Navy as an occupied territory. However, sensitive to the need to convince the other allies of Japan's claims in the region, the Navy's occupation was fairly light. An initial overwhelming show of force in the form of the two South Seas squadrons was enough to cow local resistance or any attempt by the scattered German population to resist Japanese takeover. Most of the Germans were then forcibly expelled, the only exceptions being missionaries whose religious activities were protected under the League of Nations mandate. The new Navy administration then simply replaced the German one, keeping the same laws and regulations in the process. However, starting in 1918, the Navy began to hand off more control to a civilian government, and in 1920 the new Japanese administration, the Nanyocho, roughly South Sea's office, took over officially. The Japanese colonial government of Micronesia represented a pretty radical break from the German administration that had been there previously, which had largely just been there to be there, so to speak. Japan's colonization of Micronesia was intended, like that of Germany, as a political prestige maneuver, but the Japanese presence was far more active than the old German regime. As we already covered last week, the Japanese bureaucracy in Micronesia would get far bigger than that of the Germans. Specifically, instead of just 25 members, the Nanyocho would eventually employ over 950. It was also staffed with people from one of the most unique branches of the Japanese government, the bureaucracy. And remember, this is a bureaucracy with a very different self-image from the one some of you might have when you hear that term, particularly if you are an American. State bureaucracy in the U.S. tends to get a pretty bad rap, but in Japan, the bureaucrats were and are graduates of elite universities who went into high-prestige, high-power fields 
that gave them a lot of responsibility and power. In the imperial era, arguably still now, the professional ethos of their bureaucracy was one of disdainful confidence, one might say, disdain for those with a lesser education, and supreme confidence in their own knowledge and talent when it came to using policy to guide society. Not for nothing was one of the defining phrases of the imperial bureaucracy, Kanson Minpi, revere the bureaucrat, despise the people. And it was from this class of people that the management of the Nanyochol came from. Specifically, bureaucrats from the Takumukyoku, or Colonization Bureau, of one of the most powerful branches of the bureaucracy, the Home Ministry, or Naimushol, which among other things appointed all prefectural governors and ran the justice system. All this organizational structure might not sound like the most exciting thing in the universe, but it had a few very important effects on the nature of Japanese rule in Micronesia. For one thing, the bureaucrats picked to fill leadership roles were selected for their knowledge not of anything related to the region, but of more abstract principles related to law, political theory, economics, and the like. The position of Nanyo Chokan, essentially the colonial governor of the region, was a rotating one that Colonization Bureau bureaucrats would work through on a semi-regular basis, with most serving only two or three year terms before moving out of Micronesia permanently. Combined with a lack of knowledge of the local languages and cultures, as well as the haughty attitude so stereotypical of the Japanese bureaucrat, most of the colonial administration had little interest in Micronesian populations themselves beyond questions of how best to extract useful resources from them. For another, Micronesia itself was subject to some decidedly unusual circumstances in its government. If you're at all familiar with the colonial history of Taiwan and Korea, you know that both were subject to powerful Seoul Tokufu, or governments general. These were prestigious and independent colonial governments with substantial backing from two of the most powerful political institutions within Imperial Japan, the army and the navy. The Nanyocho was not like that. The Cho suffix was the same one used for the governments of Sakhalin Island and the Japanese outpost on the Liaodong Peninsula north of Korea. The governors of those regions were not from the highest ranks of the bureaucracy, answerable only to the emperor, the sort of people who governed Taiwan and Korea, but lower-ranking members appointed by the home minister, or, after a reorganization of how the home ministry operated in 1929, a separate colonial minister. Simply put, the Micronesian post was low prestige compared to the major colonies, so to speak. Of course, prestige is a relative thing. Within his sphere, the governor of Micronesia had basically unquestioned authority. The regulations for how Micronesia and every other colony operated were set up by imperial ordinance, and those ordinances, not subject to the supervision of the diet, gave the colonial government absolute authority. While in larger colonies like Taiwan and Korea, the non-Japanese population was able to push for some limited, though largely fig-leaf, self-government, in Micronesia the colonial bureaucrats were able to successfully argue that the region's status as a League of Nations mandate meant the area wasn't even fully under Japanese sovereignty, and thus that the Japanese constitution did not apply. This was a bit disingenuous given that the League of Nations Covenant explicitly describes Micronesia as a region that should be operating under Japanese law, 
But nobody questioned that, and as a result, the Nanyocho essentially suspended the Japanese constitution on the islands, removing even its limited guarantees of things like free speech and freedom of religion. The separation of powers was equally non-existent. The Japanese governor made and executed all laws himself, and while there were colonial courts in Micronesia, all the judges were appointed by and answerable to the governor. And so from the governor, all authority flowed downward. The mansion of the colonial governor was on Koror, in the Palau Island chain on the western end of Micronesia. From there, he and the rest of the Nanyocho leadership would direct the efforts of five branch governments, or Shicho, led by branch governors who reported to him. Those branch governments were located on Saipan in the Mariana Islands, Yap in the Western Carolines, Truk in the Central Carolines, Ponape in the Eastern Carolines, and Joliet in the Marshall Islands. The authority of the branch governors within these regions was similar to that of the governor himself, with the obvious exception that they were answerable to him. Beneath those governors were a whole host of bureaucrats responsible for documenting and managing Japanese rule, setting up school systems, hospitals, and the like to demonstrate Japan's commitment to its civilizing mission given to it by the League of Nations, or, less charitably, to make it easier to mold the locals into useful imperial subjects. The basis on which this entire imperial structure was built was, of course, the colonial police system, which did not even have the minimal restrictions of the Meiji Constitution and its associated laws to keep it in check. Police were responsible, of course, for enforcing the law, but they were also crucial to colonial administration in other ways. Japanese policemen collected taxes, handled the announcement and distribution of new ordinances from the governor and Koror, and even supervised the building of public works. Particularly in some of the more distant islands, the local police station, which might only have two or three Japanese police in it, pretty much was the colonial administration, and the Japanese police were quite possibly the only actual Japanese people many Micronesians ever met during colonial rule. For example, the distant Ratak chain of the Marshall Islands had precisely one police station for its 16 different atolls, that station being on Wotje, and the three cops stationed there were literally it in terms of direct Japanese presence in the area. Of course, running a government takes more than three people even at the local level, and so pretty much from the jump, the Japanese police recruited Junke, or native constables, who would do much of the actual police work, co-opting the locals into colonial government being a time-honored tradition of imperialism. These Junke were recruited from the population of native men under 40 who passed a physical and had five years of primary education. After a three-month crash course in the Japanese language and police methods, they were allowed to investigate misdemeanors and do some of the bureaucratic legwork of policing, but were never allowed to rise above their Japanese superiors and couldn't even investigate Japanese citizens in any legal proceeding until 1929. The other way in which native Micronesians were incorporated into the ruling bureaucracy was via the system of village chiefs. That position, of course, long predated any form of colonialism in the region, but first the Spanish and then the Germans, and eventually the Japanese, had adopted the practice of making use of these traditional authority figures to bolster their rule. 
Under the Spanish and Germans, the traditional Micronesian leadership had largely been left in place, albeit with some curbs unevenly enforced on their authority. The Japanese hand, however, was far stronger. Ruling families unwilling to comply with the directives of the Nanyocho were replaced with those that were, and a pattern of indirect rule was replaced with one where the traditional village leadership was directly supervised by the local police. These chiefs were, practically speaking, the lowest rung of Japanese colonial bureaucracy, subordinate to the orders of even the lowest-ranking Japanese member of the Nanyocho. They could not even really make decisions independently. Largely, their job was to enforce directives from above, and they weren't even fully trusted to do that, as their decisions could be overruled at any time. You might wonder whether there was any active resistance to what was, after all, a substantially more heavy-handed approach to colonialism than had existed before. The answer is not really, for two reasons. First, remember that Japanese rule in the region was inaugurated by a show of overwhelming force, a large naval squadron steaming through the region, landing marines left and right. That force withdrew by the 1920s, but the threat of it was still there. Indeed, when a rebellion on Palau, sparked by the syncretic Modeknegi religion, broke out in 1918, it was put down by swift police raids that arrested the founder and most of the leadership, with marines just offshore in case they were needed. Beyond this, organized resistance proved a challenge to organize. Micronesia is, as we've discussed, a vast territory covering a massive expanse of sea, and while its residents do share linguistic and cultural relationships, those relationships were not at this point particularly close. Put in terms of somewhat fancy academic speak, a Micronesian imagined community whose members saw themselves as tied together in the sense of a modern country did not yet exist. Indeed, it was the shared experience of colonialism that would create that identity in many ways. But in the 20s, the absence of a shared framework for thinking about Micronesian resistance instead of Palauan resistance, Marshallese resistance, and so on, meant that a mass movement genuinely threatening to Japanese rule just never came together. Besides, resistance movements like that generally aren't successful without outside help, and outside help was hard to come by. Japanese rule was recognized by the League of Nations, and Japanese regulations swiftly barred ships from outside powers from docking in most ports in the region. Technically, that was a violation of League of Nations promises about freedom of the seas, but frankly, most of the League members did not care. Their only interests in the region lay in the right to navigate through the sea, not to dock in the region, and in telegraph cables running under seas through the area, and as long as those were not interrupted, there wasn't much to worry about. Only the United States, which did and still does control a part of Micronesia in the form of the island of Guam, ever pushed back against the orders closing the region to outside shipping, and that pushback went away when the Japanese leadership promptly guaranteed there would be no interference with American shipping to Guam. So, Japanese rule is now in place in the area. Next week, we will get to the Micronesian experience under Japanese rule. But that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. This show is a part of the Facing Backward podcast network. You can find out more about this show and our other shows at facingbackward.com. You can support the network at patreon.com slash facing backward. Special thanks to those who have given at our shout out tier. Jan Leonard, 
Stephen Elkins, Martin Oliveira, Clark Canning, Ian Kellett, Matt Haynes, Jackie Frostocker, Monkey Sack, Alayla McCulloch, Karen Murphy, Peter Wales, Robert Prine, William Arno, Jonas Brandis, Nicholas Kroll, Jerry Spinrad, Jared Stevens, Jeffrey Dwork, Stefan Hrushka, Joshua Kane, Robbie and Cat, Jacob Key, Aaron Finkbeiner, A House is a Perfectly Cromulent Mascot, and The Fish I Catch are Rhodes Scholars, compared to Samuel Alito, Schmuck. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Part 3. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.